You cannot lose games in the NFL and still win. One day I understand. One day go see the baby be born and come back. You're a major league baseball player. Did I not tell you? Yes, you did. Oh, um, see, don't answer. I mean, this, these are rhetorical questions because you know I told you and you know I'm Analytics not. don't work don't at all. It's just a crap to some people who were really smart made up to try to get in the game because they had no talent. This kid is a gamer. He's a follower. He's a playmaker and a shot caller. In case you didn't know, I got T-Bowed. He shattered the mold. And all he does is win. All, all, all he does is win. Hello and welcome to Hot Takedown, 538's sports podcast. I'm Chad Matlin, an editor at 538. With me in the studio, it's Neil Statman Payne. Hi, Neil. Hey, Chad. Neil, it's just the two of us today because what listeners are about to hear actually only involves one of us and two other of our colleagues. Earlier this week, just yesterday, uh, Neil talked to Chris Herring and Kyle Wagner, two of our NBA writers, about the Kyrie Irving, Isaiah Thomas swap and all the drama that may come next involving so much the, drama yeah involving the the revised swap perhaps annulled swap does one annul a trade i think so okay and it was such a good conversation that we thought we would bring it to you the listeners as hot takedown today so what follows is a conversation between neil chris and kyle about the celtics and the cavaliers and what they're going to be like next year assuming the trade goes through and then what might happen if the trade does not so enjoy and uh, we'll talk to you next week Actually, one more thing before we get to the conversation between Neil, Chris, and Kyle, a word from one of our sponsors. Hot Take Down This Week is sponsored by Blue Apron, the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country. You've heard me talk about Blue Apron before. I'm here to talk about it again because Blue Apron's mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. Blue Apron sources its food from sustainable partnerships over 150 local farms, fisheries, and ranchers across the United States. If you spend a ton of money on restaurants or other high-end grocery chains, you can spend under $10 per person for a delicious meal. Some of those meals coming up soon in Blue Apron. Summer vegetable and egg paninis with Calabrian chili mayonnaise and caprese salad. I'm not even sure I can pronounce all the words in that correctly. That's how nice it sounds. Soy glazed pork and rice cakes with bok choy and marinated green beans. Skillet vegetable chili with cornmeal and cheddar drop biscuits. Or finally, garlic butter shrimp and corn with green bean salad and roasted purple tomatoes. Blue Apron is affordable. It's got variety. It never repeats a recipe in a year. It's flexible. You can customize your recipes each week based on your preferences It's easy. Each meal comes with a step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe card and pre-portioned ingredients and can be prepared in 40 minutes or less. So what do you do to get all this? Because you can get your first three meals for free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash takedown. Again, blueapron.com slash takedown is going to give you three meals for free with free shipping. You're going to love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So do not wait. BlueApron.com slash takedown. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Today on the show, we're going to talk about a couple of teams that were involved in one of the biggest blockbuster trades we've seen over the past couple seasons, and they're both in it to win this season and hopefully down the line. What I'm talking about is the trade between the Cavaliers and the Boston Celtics, which sent Kyrie Irving to Boston for a collection of players and picks that included Isaiah Thomas. So we'll talk about the big trade, and also after the trade news broke, things were a little bit complicated by the fact that the Cavs evaluated Isaiah Thomas's hip. 
matchup, which he tore against Cleveland of all teams in the playoffs. And things might be, you know, there might be some hangups in the trade. So we'll talk about, you know, what should Cleveland ask for if they're going to ask for something extra and mainly just how does this change the way that the teams play and also the long-term implications of the deal for each team in the Eastern Conference. So I want to talk about Cleveland first because they are the defending Eastern Conference champs and, and have been so for each of the past three seasons. Kyrie Irving demanded a trade earlier in the summer, and it seemed like the Cavs were kind of over the barrel in terms of you know the leverage that they had, yet they seem to have found a pretty good pairing with the trade as it was constructed before this news about Isaiah Thomas's hip hit. That was a pretty good haul, don't you think, Kyle? Yeah, so it was easier on Cleveland's side than it was going to be on Boston's side to find a deal here. But Cleveland still did really well, especially because of the young teams that were going to send picks back or any kind of value. So look at the the Sixers, for example. The Sixers already got Fultz, and Markel Fultz might turn into as good of a player as Kyrie, might not, but that's who they're going to run with at that position. So, And the Sacramento Kings, they drafted De'Aaron Fox. Not much need for Kyrie Irving. So the teams that were out there, like the Miami Heat and uh, whomever else, who would really want him, San Antonio also, like Kyrie wanted to go down there, be the next Tony Parker. These are teams that didn't have as much to you know, send back. It was really just going to be the Celtics and like maybe some other mystery team, but like they're the only one that like really made sense. And Chris, what, what do you think about uh, you know, the collection of players that the Cavs are going to put on the court next season? I mean, it's kind of easy to look at this and be like, oh, you know, you lose Kyrie Irving, but you bring in Isaiah Thomas. They're kind of similar, right? I mean, they're great offensive players and, and kind of weak defensive players. But it does actually change because they do play a different style, right? Yeah, they, they definitely have a different style. I mean, I, I think it obviously gets considerably more complicated when you, you factor in the idea that Isaiah may not be healthy and we're not sure when he's able to play or when he's able to be himself. Yeah, let's just assume that the trade happens for now and then we can talk later in the show about what the backup plan is if it does actually fall through. Sure. So, I mean, even if he's totally healthy, I mean, it, it would be really, really easy and kind of elementary to say, you know, Kyrie averages 25 or 26 a game and Isaiah Thomas averages almost 29, and, and you kind of plug it in from there. But it, it, it's not quite that simple. Boston, their whole offense was kind of formulated around Isaiah Thomas and, you know, the idea of him taking handoffs, the idea of screening for him because he's kind of so small, that almost like football the running back where you can kind of hide behind your blockers to some extent. And so Boston utilized handoffs more than any team in the league for Isaiah Thomas, and he got to the basket that way several times a game. And Cleveland, and, and beyond that, Boston, obviously, is a team that moves the ball well, second-highest assist rate in the league behind Golden State. Cleveland is kind of the polar opposite of that. Kyrie Irving is a guy that got a lot of his shots from one-on-one play, but just kind of dribbling around people and through people. And Isaiah Thomas can do some of that, but more of his offense is kind of coming from somebody passing the ball to him and him getting a step on his defender. And so... Cleveland, in order to kind of spring Isaiah Thomas free and to kind of make him feel comfortable in the offense with LeBron, is probably going to need to do more to, to get him openings within their offense. He obviously can create for himself as well, but I think it becomes much easier if they can kind of make some provisions in their offense to kind of make shots for him and create shots for him and get him better looks than what he would have just trying to create on his own. 
So, Chris, I think that's true, but that they're going to have to do more, but not necessarily different things than they already do. So the way that they run uh, Corver off of those screens, like where Corver's on the wing, take that little flare screen from the big man, all of a sudden he's in the middle or on the wing, taking an open three-pointer. I mean, that's basically the same thing they were doing with those dribble handoffs in Boston where, you know, he would do the old Tony Parker loop around, you know, take the dribble handoff, all of a sudden he's running the defense from the middle of the floor. I mean, that's the same action, just, you know, different, you know, decisions once he has the ball in his hand. And, like, so, yeah, it was really different when Kyrie would be doing that because, you know, Kyrie wouldn't do that. Kyrie was just, he's a singular one-on-one player. He can, you know, make that happen on his own. But he was kind of operating apart from the rest of the Cleveland offense. The Cleveland offense, as it exists with, you know, LeBron as the fulcrum of it, does have those actions in it. You know, the old San Antonio Hammer style stuff where, you know, uh, Isaiah can be getting screened off the ball, can, you know, get the ball in the corner on the wing or, you know, you know cut baseline or reverse, whatever. And so that stuff's already built in. What they're losing, I think, that they can't replace with Isaiah is the, the one-on-one stuff where, you know, he's, you know, creating on his own, right. taking that load off of LeBron in the playoffs where, like you saw in the Golden State series, it, it came down to just like kind of the two of them, you know, taking turns, going one-on-one and just being like, look, I'm going to get to the bucket here because the rest of our offense, you know, doesn't seem to be working. And, like, you saw that kind of with Boston where that stuff with the dribble handoffs, all the off-ball, like, action, you know, well, if you have Draymond covering all that and, like, Durant covering up all that, <laughs> well, it, it, it kind of looks a little different with, you know, the best defenders in the league in the playoffs, you know, kind of bore, bearing down on that. So, I mean, that's somewhere where Cleveland might have to, you know, figure out what they're going to do with it. But I think they already have the stuff in place that they can they can you know kind of figure that out. No, I think you're right. I, I think what the biggest concern I think that you just kind of got at is exactly also speaks to Isaiah Thomas's health a little bit too. The, the when LeBron is tired and needs a break, can this guy run the offense and lead the offense where you're not getting pummeled in those few minutes? And obviously, the answer with Kyrie Irving was no, even though he's a really skilled player. And that was kind of the fear here with potentially, you know, trading too much to get Kyrie Irving is that, you know, we don't know if he can run a team on his own. And Isaiah Thomas, that might be even more true of because he's obviously a lot shorter, six inches shorter than Kyrie Irving. And quite honestly, yes, he can move the ball. He can include his teammates in the game. He does need some help to get his own shot, uh, as we saw with Boston. But he's going to be even probably more of a defensive liability than Kyrie Irving was. And so the idea of, you know, the Cavs being able to keep their head above water when LeBron's off the court, that becomes a huge concern and and something that I'm not sure that that really covers the loss of of Kyrie Irving as well as you would hope. But then again, there aren't many people that could do that that well that are also individual talents that score 30 points a game. So, you know, I don't know that they were looking for that specifically, but, you know, that's one area where it will be worth watching. Do they get so much worse on defense at the point of attack when LeBron's off the court to where this hurts them in some ways. Jay Crowder is a nice piece to be able to help them defensively and a piece that they didn't have on that end of the floor. But, you know, Isaiah Thomas will probably be even worse defensively. Again, not even knowing what that means in terms of the injuries and what have you, but that's 
definitely an area to watch, especially based on how much they struggled in the finals with LeBron off the court. Yeah, I want I wanted to talk about first of all LeBron just getting to be the age that he is, and and he might need more than ever before someone else who can kind of come in. And yet, if you look at that Cleveland on and off court plus minus last season, the Cavs when they had LeBron off the court, whether Kyrie was on the court or not, they still just were not the same team. And so maybe is it possible that they can kind of bring some of the things that Isaiah did with Boston when he really was kind of leading a one-man offense and run some things similar to that when LeBron's not in the game, even if those two might have you know to work on their chemistry when they're in the game together, that it still could, to your point earlier, you know, give them more options when LeBron isn't on the court. I think so. And so you saw this a little bit in the Boston series where uh, Boston didn't like Boston had a lot of shooters, but they had a lot of guys taking a lot of shots, like Marcus Smart, who you know you probably didn't want that. Cleveland is one of the one of like four teams in the league that is just stocked top to bottom with shooters, to where they can space the floor out, kind of the same way that Boston was doing for Isaiah. So I mean, if they and like I said, like they have a lot of the same actions already built in, like they're for different outcomes, like for an out perimeter shot, then instead of like a drive. But Isaiah is actually a more kind of Cavsy player. Like LeBron Ball is like shots at the rim or, you know, kick out for three pointers or like maybe step into a three pointer from the left wing because you're LeBron and whatever. Like those are the shots. And like those are the Isaiah shots, too. He's just a really, really tiny (laughs) LeBron in, in, in a little ways. So, I mean, like from the shot chart. Yeah. Like where if you look at Kyrie's shot chart, he takes a lot of mid range stuff and not just from like the way Dwayne Wade would do it from, like, only from the left wing. Like, he takes mid-range from everywhere because, you know, he's crossing guys up all over the floor. But, like, if you look at Isaiah's stuff, he is one. He's, looks like James Harden. Like, he only takes these wing threes, uh, some in the corner, like, when it comes to the offense, and, like, then he's just at the at rim. At the basket. Yeah. Uh, the other thing, you guys mentioned Crowder because uh, I think he—I get the sense from at least the, the kind of mainstream coverage of the trade that Crowder is seen as, you know, nice player, kind of uh, an additional piece in the trade, but not exactly, you know, like an earth-shattering addition to the Cavs. Now, if you look at the stats, on the other hand, for instance, real plus minus ESPN's metric that tracks a, a player's impact or at least purports to do so, thought that Jay Crowder was the fifth best small forward in in basketball last season in some ways because of his defense but also a very good offensive rating and this one should crack you guys up that he had a higher rating than either Kyrie Irving or Isaiah Thomas last season so should we you know maybe that might be a little bit much but should we be looking at this and thinking of this as a really underrated acquisition that might help Cleveland at both ends and especially as you mentioned earlier Chris on the defensive end where this was not a good team last season And they probably got worse by adding a a player that has so many kind of unique matchup deficiencies in Thomas. Well, depending on what he covers for, I mean, it was really interesting that that trade got completed or, you know, maybe you have to use the the, the two figures for the parentheticals, got completed, you know, so to speak. If he's replacing someone like Amon Shumpert's minutes, and, you know, you heard Amon Shumpert, rumored to be traded or, you know, wanting to be traded or what have you, requesting a trade. I don't think that's coincidence that you hear about that right after that trade goes through because he is probably the person that has the most to lose in a deal like that. He probably sees his minutes dwindle as a result of Jay Crowder joining the team. And, yeah, Jay Crowder, I'll put it this way. If you could get two or three Jay Crowders, I think I would actually say, you know, with a healthy Isaiah Thomas, 
that you might have even leveled the playing field. I mean, I, obviously, Kevin Durant swings the pendulum so far by himself, but Jay Crowder, you, you need guys like him that can really stay with everybody on the court with how much the Warriors move around and, you know, and are setting screens and everything. You need guys that are physical enough to be able to get through all the screens they set, that are quick enough to be able to stay with guys like Clay Thompson when they sprint from one side of the floor to the other. They can, you know, are smart enough and perceptive enough to be able to know where those screens are coming from and where guys are trying to end up on the floor. And then also can shoot well enough to stay on the court so that you're not like a Shumpert or a Darren Williams who just goes totally cold for, you know, entire stretches or entire games. And so Crowder kind of checks off all those boxes. Now, what I think Kyle made a really good point about at one point, he needs to show that he can do that consistently from an offensive standpoint. I think he's kind of gotten a reputation as a guy that, you know, is a great shooter. I think he's a decent shooter, had a really good season last year. But, yeah, he's got a ton of value if he's able to do those things on both sides of the court because of his size and because of how physical he is. So I think, I think it's important that he, uh, so last year he shot, I think, 39.8%, like basically 40% shooter, hadn't been above 33 or 34 before that, so kind of in that Trevor Ariza range, you never know sure which season you're going to get from yeah, him. Yeah, and we know with three-point shooters, sometimes they luck into some of these like fluke seasons right, that you right, can't right. read too much into. But like, I also think that like, see, he's a pr- so he's a pretty good, not great shooter so far. He's also a pretty good, not great defender so mm. far. So he's going to take those miles off LeBron because I mean, for wing defenders last year, the Cavs had J.R. Smith as their <laughs> best wing defender, and really that was it. If they didn't want to put LeBron on the dude, and so it's like you had Richard Jefferson off the bench or whatever, but like that really wasn't going to do it for you. So yeah, yeah, he adds that, but in the finals or wherever you're going to be, if you see Kevin Durant. Jay Crowder can't really do anything to Kevin Durant. <laughs> and like we saw in the finals, neither can LeBron at this point. So, I mean, like LeBron's probably your better bet still. But like, I don't know if like he's giving you that thing that like, I mean, God willing, if Andre Robertson ever learns how to shoot, like Andre <laughs> Robertson like, can do something to those dudes. I mean, like Paul George, you think can do something to those dudes. I don't think Jay Crowder's quite one of those guys. So it's kind of like he he might be a 3 and D type of guy that they need but he's just like a notch below in both 3 and D. Oh, he's definitely he's definitely a player and especially because of his contract. We haven't talked about his contract yet. Right. I think he makes 6 million dollars a year, which is absurd when like Alan Crabbs out here making like 20 million dollars a year. <laughs> like so I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. I I get it. Like he has obvious value. He is obviously useful to a team, but I mean, if we're talking about like the matchups that like the Cavs are traditionally talking about then I'm not sure he moves the needle that far from like, yeah, he's better than Shump, but I'm not sure how much better. Now, now some of this was done, uh, in fact, Chris, you wrote about this, that this wasn't just about the Cavs setting themselves up for 2018, but also giving themselves flexibility going forward in, in a better way than they had when they were in this purgatory where they had to figure out not only what they were going to do with Kyrie, but also you know, LeBron's future in Cleveland is far from certain right now. So have the Cavs, you know, at least stepped in the right direction in terms of setting themselves up for what happens down the line if and when LeBron leaves or if and when, you know, they have to kind of deal with what an aging LeBron looks like, even if he does stay with them? I think so. And I mean, it's it's really interesting. I know we'll probably get to this a little bit later too, but it's really interesting to see some of the analysts and critics even go as far as to say, even if Isaiah isn't right physically, that this is a good deal for Cleveland just because of the value of that pick that they got, the Nets pick for 2018, which I think that's going a little bit far. I mean, I think Cleveland would be smart, obviously, to ask for more if they're not satisfied with Isaiah Thomas's physical. But, you know, that, that was the big 
part of this deal. Obviously, you get a guy that is perceived to be a win-now guy in Thomas and is a win-now guy based on the fact that he's in a contract here. He's got every incentive to play well this season, uh, which you figure that would go a long way in, trying, in terms of trying to convince LeBron to stay if Thomas plays well. But then you also get that pick and you get uh, Zizic, another part of this deal that you know I think a lot of us don't really know what to expect of him just yet as a player, but you know was the kind of person that I think a lot of Celtics fans were like, man, we had to include him in the deal because he actually might have some upside. And so this was kind of a home run deal for Cleveland on paper. You, you look at how often are you going to get a guy that almost averages 30 a game that still is only 28 and, you know, a pick that a lot of people think could, could be a top five, top seven pick. Um, and the fact that you went in knowing that you kind of had to do something like this in order to protect yourself just in case LeBron does leave. And so on paper, this was a great trade, I think, for Cleveland. Uh, it was just one of those rare deal, deals where I don't think it was necessarily a bad trade for the other team, even though it's such a good deal for Cleveland, because it, it really seemed like both teams got out of this what they wanted to, at least for the time being. Yeah, I mean, like, Zizic like, seems like the kind of player where it's like, he's not that he's not going to be a big difference maker, but it's like in the Mellow deal where, like, Knicks fans are like, I can't believe we have to throw in Mozgov. Like, yeah. Like, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, it's just a little bit extra. Okay, so let's move on to the Celtics now that we've talked about the Cavs. And uh, it's kind of weird that the trade was between the Cavs and the Celtics because it's almost like, you know, the divisions don't matter in the NBA, right? And so you always talk about never trading inside your division in a sport like baseball or football where it does matter. I think it's almost like you never trade among tiers uh, within the conference in some ways. And and the Cavs and the Celtics are both really gunning for the same prize and, and they're right, you know, on the cusp of the same prize, which is the the Eastern Conference Championship. So my question, uh, first of all, is how good are the Celtics now with Kyrie Irving and also with Gordon Hayward and and basically the overhauled version of the Celtics that Danny Ainge put together this summer? Are they good enough to beat the Cavs? And and dare I say, could they even uh, contend with the Warriors if if and when they did make the finals? What, What do we think about this new Celtics team? So, I mean, like, it, it's an entirely new Completely team. Completely new team. So, like, it, what happened last year with the Celtics, like, really just doesn't have any bearing. Like, the one of, like, the the biggest, like, through lines is going to be, like, Jalen Brown, who, like, barely yeah. played in the and things. was terrible when he did play. Right. He was, he was good for stretches, but, like, yeah, overall, like, his numbers were, like, not that good to look at. But, like, as a rookie, getting in and, like, putting in solid playoff minutes is pretty rare. So, like, you, you kind of adjust for that, I think. But, like, so you're looking at, like, so Kyrie Irving comes to the Boston Celtics, but, like, not just that. So Gordon Hayward already was going to have to fit into this system. And then Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, like, both are going to have pretty big roles, especially with, you know, Crowder stepping out. So, I mean, I think uh, this works. So we'll start with Hayward. Hayward actually can fit into a lot of the Isaiah stuff. So one of the big things that he would do um, in Utah was, like, what is kind of like a pin-down um screen where he would just like run up the court like away from the basket take a handoff uh the way that isaiah would take a handoff and then like turn around look at the floor drive to the basket whatever that trades like kind of vision of the court for a little extra spacing which is more important for hayward and like so they can run approximately the same stuff that they ran for for isaiah like through Hayward and like get some of that stuff out of him, but like, that's really interesting. By the way, I don't think a lot of people would look at Gordon Hayward and Isaiah Thomas and think, yeah, you know, they can kind of do some of the same things on the court. They'll they'll play similar ball. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just it's kind of roles, like in like just kind of like individual jobs on the floor. Like Hayward can fill some of those, and like 
but obviously they're getting like a one-on-one player with Kyrie that they haven't had before and like having to, having to fit him in. I don't know. Like, it's going to be a real big deal, especially with like young guys like Brown and Tatum who like kind of are probably going to need to be set up a little bit. Yeah, I, I've got a, a lot of questions about Boston as it relates to this. I mean, first of all, we really haven't seen much of Brown and especially of Tatum, you know, the little most of us did see of him at Duke and then in summer league. He He is an extremely independent kind of one-on-one guy that all of a sudden is going to need to fit in a scheme that, you know, is a little bit more team-based, especially when you think about a guy like Horford, a guy like Hayward, who, you know, Utah was still a team that was pretty pass-heavy and pretty assist-heavy. And and all of a sudden, you know, Irving obviously is is one of the best one-on-one players in the league. And so does the offense kind of become more like Cleveland's in some ways because they're getting players that, you know, like to kind of take things on their own one-on-one. So that's a big question, and I think even more so what I'm curious about, you know, Boston had become a pretty solid defensive team, especially with certain lineups, especially when they decided they wanted to run Marcus Smart, Avery Bradley, Al Horford out there together. All of a sudden now you've got Avery Bradley gone. You've obviously got Kyrie Irving coming into the fold, and you lose Jay Crowder. And, you know, and so it's it's kind of a team where, uh, you know, obviously when you lose us hit Thomas, you normally get stronger on offense. Maybe they do a little bit at the point guard position, but uh, losing Bradley is going to have an impact. And, you know, like Kyle said, I don't think Crowder is a great player, but he was obviously a pretty good defender uh, most of the time against most guys in this league. And so, you know, do they fall from being a top 10, 12 defense all of a sudden of kind of being just middle of the pack or slightly worse than that? And that, probably does have a pretty big role because all of a sudden now you're asking these younger guys to try to step in and guard LeBron James when the time comes to get back to the Eastern Conference Finals. And that's a pretty big task that, you know, I'm not sure a lot of those guys, just based on their experience in the league, are really ready for that responsibility. Yeah, so the defense is a big thing for me, especially like those two things combined. So the the kind of iso ball or at least one-on-one style, like that's where their strengths are. And like not being able to fall back on defense. So like one of the teams that we've seen with players who like to that point in their careers were kind of more individual was like that original Heat team with uh, LeBron and Wade and Bosh. And like not to say that they're on the same level, but like they didn't fit perfectly like the the 08 Celtics. So what they did when Spo got down there was like, yeah, eventually they got into, you know, the warring, you know, kind of. A Spurs style ball like late into the process but early on they were just kind of a one-on-one team that like played killer killer defense out on the perimeter whatever else and Kyrie and Gordon Hayward aren't LeBron and Dwayne Wade in their primes like they don't have that to fall back on until they get this fit right yeah and that might be kind of telling you know if you look at the projections we run these Carmelo projections where we try to you know kind of get a vague sense of how good the rosters are and if you were to have done that for say the uh, the Miami Heat when they added all those guys you just mentioned Kyle they would have been off the charts in terms of their projection because they were bringing together three Hall of Famers or at least near Hall of Fame players and, and Chris Bosch in their primes together at the same time. Uh, but even they had these diminishing returns and these hiccups and these, you know, early uh, situations in which they didn't know how to play together. And it really brought down their potential, at least at first. The thing with this, the, this, this Celtics team is when you run the same projection, you only end up with like a 45 win team in terms of the talent on there. And maybe they'll be able to add, you know, it seems like depth might be an issue, or at least we don't know what they have in some of these young guys. And maybe that 
helps with the projection a little bit. But also, you know, what happens when uh, the the diminishing returns set in and and the the growing pain set in for this team that really, in terms of talent at a baseline, doesn't look like they're as good as Cleveland, who has overhauled things comparatively much less uh, over the last year. So one thing I would say about the projections, and like I agree with all that, like the, like it's concerning that like you're adding like you know, oh yeah we're adding all these pieces in Boston we're like you know we're finally consolidating assets we've got Kyrie now and it's like forty five wins yeah so that so, might be a little I mean yeah, I, if yeah, that yeah. I'm taking the over if that's the projection but still so yeah I I agree that it, that is a concern but like what I would say at least on Kyrie's projection um, Gordon's a little less so because like they they ran you know a strain like. It's a it's a non standard system for a star down there in Utah, but for Kyrie, he's not really playing on the 2009 Raptors here, like where he's maximizing his stats that we know would plug into that projection. Last year, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And the previous couple, right? So, I mean, his best year was probably the first year that he played with LeBron in like 14-15. But even then, like this is not a system that's you know built to accentuate his talents the way that the Boston system was built to accentuate. Isaiah's or even like down in uh, Miami where like Dragic is looking a lot better than like maybe he would on a different team because Spo is just, you know, putting together a system that, you know, makes him look as good as you can. And so Kyrie, when he's on a team where like we're trying to just make Kyrie shine, I don't know what that looks like, like especially a 25, 26 year old Kyrie and not like a 20 year old the last time we saw that. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. like. His projections don't look as great as you would hope, and like you know, I still have questions like about the holes in his game too. But I mean, he might be out here scoring thirty a game next year, like on like fifty-eight true shooting or something, you know, silly like that. So I mean, we're gonna have to see what that looks like. Yeah, I think that when, when we're talking about Kyrie, one of the things that I wanted to pick you guys' brain about is I feel like. The talk about him has kind of gradually grown over the years and maybe reached kind of a fever pitch this summer, especially after he made his trade demand, about talking about him in the same conversation as some of these other guys who are potentially the best player on an NBA champion or at least a championship contender. And and maybe one of the paths that he takes is, yeah, when he gets off of the Cavs, maybe he becomes James Harden. I mean, Harden started his career in the shadow of other superstars and sort of took a while to blossom and become actually one of these like you know elite players in the league MVP candidate type players do we think Kyrie can eventually become on that level and and if so how quickly is this something where we'll see that maturation happen next year since he's away from LeBron or does it take some time because of all the things we mentioned with the Celtics chemistry being you know a work in progress I think it takes time just you know it's funny that you bring that up because you know how quickly we forget we talk about how bad Kyrie is on defense and obviously James Harden you know, is not someone we view as an elite defender either. But Harden, you know, so much. Of we've the all time seen the YouTube t- uh, tape. We've, we've all seen we've that seen mixtape. Him. And I mean, I think what you could say about Harden a lot of times is that he, a lot of times with him was effort. And to some extent, too, the same is true with Harden. That, you know, the same things are true with him as or with Kyrie as it relates to Isaiah Thomas. Harden is taller than Kyrie Irving, too. And so depending on what position James Harden is guarding, sort of effort he's putting out there, but also the fact that we have to be really honest in saying that James Harden is, is easily a top five, six passer in this league. Maybe, you know, at times you look at him and you wonder if he's the best passer in the league because of all the different things he can do with his eyes because of, you know, I, I wrote a story earlier in the year about how far he can throw his passes compared to the average person. And Kyrie, you know, there have been points in his career where LeBron is fielding questions at the press conference podium about, 
you know, whether they need to be harder on Kyrie about having entire games where he doesn't finish with an assist. Now, he's improved, you know, since then. He's become more consistent since then. And I think even LeBron has gone out of his way to talk to Kyrie about facilitating more. But we also have these long stretches where Kyrie, you know, is going to do his own thing. And so it's a little different. You know, I think his career arc has also been different, too, in the sense that he started as kind of like the key guy, the number one guy, then handed the reins over to some extent to LeBron. And now last year, you know, you look and he had a higher usage rate than LeBron did. He was taking more shots than LeBron did per game. So, he, you know, he's an interesting player, but I, 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 it's still early in his career. You know, he just turned 25, but I have a really hard time seeing Kyrie winning a title as the best player on a team. It, it's just, maybe it's just the fact that the teams we're looking at now generally move the ball a little bit better, you know, and we have a lot of questions about, you know, how does, what would a Russell Westbrook-led team look like? as an NBA champion, and what would that require? And, um, you know, it's, it's tough to really see how exactly it looks with guys that dominate the offense the way they do, not necessarily in terms of how many shots they take, but more so in terms of guys that control the ball for 9, 10, 11 seconds at a time, and then moving the ball when guys are just not as engaged as teammates. No, and that makes sense. So, like, number one, Russell Westbrook, the champion, looks a lot like it does this year if, you know, the Warriors weren't sitting there, you know, just kind of in the way. But, like, more broadly, like we're gonna have to have every episode yeah, some yeah, kind yeah, of yeah, Russell yeah. Westbrook segment with Kyle. <laughs> but you go back to the, to those Harden on the uh, on the Thunder teams, and like he was the sixth man, like he was coming in running the offense, and then in crunch time he would stay in there, kind of still running the offense. Russ would move off the ball, and it worked because like he was he was like naturally a good facilitator. He'd all, it was always just obvious when he was on the court. You don't quite quite get that from Kyrie. I mean, you talked about like the stuff where like LeBron's like, "Yo, you can't be having these like zero, one, two assist games." But like, there are possessions too where it's just it's very clear he's not looking at his teammates at all, and like that's okay. And like in the regular season, like you know, just screwing around. But like in the playoffs, in the conference finals, in the finals, like uh, it's a little harder to swallow. Like even like as a Kyrie supporter, you got to be like. Man, like you, you cannot just have these possessions where like it's obvious you're not going to pass, and then like the defense figures it out and they throw two guys at you and you throw up a brick. Like that's tough to swallow. But like then you look at like okay, so who's he, who's he modeling his game after? Obviously, it's Kobe, and it took Kobe a long time to figure this out or like to be forced to. But like eventually, uh, he came to the thing where he was playing for D'Antoni at the end, and he was playing de facto point guard where like. Everyone started, you know, talking about like, oh, so the Kobe assisters where he misses a shot and like the teammate gets an <laughs> offensive rebound, but it actually was kind of a thing. And but like even beside that, like he was kind of like playing a deconstructed style of point guard where like he would draw so much attention with his penetration or, you know, whatever he was doing that like he could make a pretty simple pass the way that like, you know, Peyton Manning just like does like, you know, all this, you know, gyrating at the line and like he ends up with a pretty simple defense because he switches into so much stuff. So there's a version of Kyrie that can be successful, but, like, the the version where he's, like, the best player on the team, like, it's got to be, like, an ensemble thing where, like, Tony Parker was a finals MVP playing kind of similar to the way Kyrie does, but, like, you know, with a Hall of Famer, Tim Duncan, you right. know, down low and, like, with Manu and, like, everything else. Yeah, and, and you know, you think about one-two punches around the league. Now the Celtics have this Kyrie, Gordon Hayward, one-two punch. Is that even comparable to some of the other, you know, other teams are building big threes. This team has kind of a, 
is it a big two even? Is it is it kind of like a big 1.5? Like, I don't know what you would call this if, if the designs are to compete with some of these other teams across the league, not just in the East. And, and, and maybe that, uh, you know, underscores how much is relying on Jalen Brown and, and Jason Tatum and some of the other guys that we talked about coming into their own. And then maybe they will have more of a core. No, it's got to be it's got to be the young players and the pick that's still coming, because like if you're just talking Irving and Hayward, like I'm probably going to take like Wall and Beal over them. I don't know what Chris thinks, though. Like, but like, yeah, as as a one, two, nah, as like a one, two, three, four, five, maybe we'll see in a couple of years. Yeah, I mean, Brad Stevens becomes one of the things I'm most excited about with that team. If we're talking about just them as a one, two punch. I mean, honestly, the way I view that, I actually think that what you get there, I mean, it, you know, like an NBA jam team, I, I kind of actually think it, it becomes a much, much, much worse version of what the Cavs had with Irving and LeBron, except Irving becomes the better scorer out of those two. And then you've got Hayward, who's like a very, 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 very poor man, LeBron. I mean, because he can't do as much one-on-one, like Kyle was saying. Hayward does a lot of his stuff off the ball as well. Um, you know, and I mean, we, we watched that Clippers series where Joe Johnson was kind of the hero for long stretches because Joe Johnson was the one most comfortable taking those shots in late clock situations. And so, um, you know, Hayward's not that guy. He's, he's, he's a very good player. I mean, you could make the argument that he's a top 20, 25 player, but he's not, I mean, he's not in the same stratosphere as some of these top five, 10 guys that we saw in the finals. And so Irving actually becomes probably the better offensive player and score between those two. And like I said, Hayward probably becomes a, a probably becomes a, a very, very poor man's LeBron. And I don't, I mean, that's probably if that's all you had and no other people really in your core you're maybe talking about a 40 win team and you know some extras maybe thrown on because brad stevens is a better coach than most but that's not a team i'm very excited about with those two guys at the top because you're not starting out with anybody that's got the potential to make you an elite defense within that that two those two group of guys Right, so I mean, I almost feel like you got to hope if you're if you're the Celtics, you got to hope that those aren't your two best players. That like either Tatum or Brown like come up and you know turn into the next Kawhi Leonard, turn into the next Paul George, and just you know kind of push Gordon down, push maybe Kyrie down, and so that like you need you know some talent coming in, and like the the subjunctive has been like you know potentially like we're going to have like these three young players, like the the three picks coming in from the the Nets and like the Lakers pick and whatever else. And that's going to surround our talent, like our core with whatever. And like, it's going to accentuate them. It kind of has to displace them because like the core as it did exist and as it does exist, like that's not really enough to be like the best players on a championship team. But now, so Kyle, you kind of wrote about this last week. The Celtics are sort of more in their final form, their their final evolution, uh, if we're talking in uh, role-playing game terms or something, uh, than they were, you know, at any point in the past handful of years. They stockpiled all these assets, and they were kind of waiting, and, and it was the promise of becoming something. And now Danny Ainge has cashed out a lot of those uh, chips that he was holding, and this is what he has. Is this sort of what you can what you could have expected that uh, that collection of assets to turn into on average? Uh, or, or is it better than you should have expected? Or is it kind of worse than you would have expected? So, I mean, we'll see. Uh, they don't have... Yeah, so like they're Charizard in this like... Yeah, whatever. right. That's uh, what I was getting like, at. But like low-level one, though. So we have First to see what Pokemon he's going to turn into. Yeah, of, uh... yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so like, 
But here, so here's the thing: like we don't know yet. Like yeah. the, they are they're highly drafted. And, like Jalen Brown was three, and uh, they have another one coming in. And like, but we've seen that you don't have to be drafted like one, two, or three to you know turn into a star. And like Brown has like obvious potential. Like of of the two, I think that like he's like a more sure thing where. He can he can check guys like you know one through four. He can he can play a lot of positions. He can distribute a little bit. He can rebound. Like he's good. And if he learns how to score, you know the way that like apparently wing players are just learning how to score like elite wing players at these days. Like that didn't used to be the case. Like but all of a sudden you look up one day like and Paul George and Kawhi Leonard who came in pretty raw are like doing Kobe steps out on the wing. Yeah, it's not like Stacy Ogman suddenly turned into <laughs> right, know, right, a right. star scorer or something. But like player development is much better now and like these guys who come in raw like are turning into like legit like threats on the wing. So if he can do that, like yeah, yeah, he can be Paul George. He can be, you know, something that like you want to build a team around. And like Tatum looked really good in summer league. To, I, like Chris and I were there, it was kind of concerning to me that like to get around these summer league guys, he was having to use these Kobe Bryant spin moves and stuff. Like, man, like maybe you should just be taking it to the rack because you should should be beating these summer league guys. But like, I don't know, he looks really polished. He looks like he could be like you know something special. But like, it's really early to tell. But no, no, like they, they got pretty good prospects here. But like, they're not guys like Joel Embiid who just comes in and like as a rookie, like third year rookie, whatever, uh, and like is Quote, just unquote, dominating. Rookie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, Chris and Kyle, before we keep going, let's pause for a moment to hear a word from one of our sponsors, One Eight Hundred Flowers. Nothing tops the excitement of a One Eight Hundred Flowers bouquet. And right now, when you order a dozen multicolored roses for only $29.99, 1-800-Flowers will give you another dozen absolutely free. That's 50% off the original price. This beautiful arrangement of vibrant pink, orange, and purple roses will leave your loved ones stunned without spending a fortune. It's the best of both worlds, amazing roses at an unbeatable price. These gorgeous roses from 1-800-Flowers are picked at their peak and shipped overnight to ensure freshness. A dozen multicolored roses for only $29.99 plus another dozen for free? It's an unreal deal. There's 1-800-Flowers.com and then there's everybody else. To order a dozen multicolored roses plus an extra bouquet for just $29.99, go to 1-800-Flowers.com, click the radio icon and enter the code TAKEDOWN. That's 1-800-Flowers.com, code TAKEDOWN. So one last thing, I wanted to kind of circle back and finish by talking about the big elephant in the room, which is this injury to Isaiah. And what happens if this trade just explodes and, and just ends? Uh, where, where do both of these teams go from here? And especially where do the Cavs go from here since, you know, Kyrie demanded the trade? And it seems like they can't go into the season with him still on that roster with LeBron, but maybe they can. I don't know. What do you guys think? Yeah, that's where I played chicken here honestly if i if i'm cleveland you you obviously want more out of the trade i I also have several questions about how we got this far down this path where you know we've you know the teams have sent out tweets thanking these guys basically for their service to the team and all of a sudden like wait hold up we might not be able to complete the deal because Isaiah's hip is so bad that, you know, he might not be ready to play for several months. Uh, so, I mean, there's a lot at stake here. I don't know who has more at stake, but it would seem like Cleveland is in a really bad spot. I mean, there have been reports coming out saying that Kyrie was prepared to not come to camp, for instance, you know, if they figure out a landing spot for him. And it sounds like a lot of teams have kind of crossed him off the list because the asking price was too high. 
And so I, I can't really imagine how many other teams had a better situation to offer Cleveland than Boston did. You know, obviously a number one pick uh, in the future and the, the idea that you get a guy that is, you know, third in the league in scoring and not particularly old, this is a good setup. And, you know, another role player to throw in there and maybe a, a guy that has upside in the future. And so you still probably want to ask for more to make it more fair if you feel like Isaiah is not going to be ready to play. And this might be, you know, this is the last year of his contract, so if he's not ready to play now, you might not ever get a good version of him without paying him more money. Uh, on the flip side of that, if you're Boston, I mean, what do you have to lose here other than standing firm? I mean, Isaiah Thomas would not be happy with the way this all played out, but he also might not be healthy, so he might not really be in a position with much leverage to be angry with you and to really, you know, he's in a contract here, so he has to play hard anyway. Boston might want to stand their ground here, uh, but Cleveland obviously has every right to ask for more, even if they probably should have done a little bit more homework to begin with. Yeah, so I touched on this a uh, little bit earlier last week, but I think you're totally right where like the Celtics have to think about that, but also I don't know if they're ever going to get uh, value on uh, Thomas again. Like, So everyone uh, was really saying that you know Cleveland obviously won the trade, but... I mean, this is the last opportunity they have to get, like, trade value out of Isaiah as part of a package because, like, one, he makes, like, $6 million this year. He's going, It's going to be really hard for them to re-sign him, especially at his age. But, like, also, like, not many teams need a point guard, especially ones that are trying to get older or, like, are at least, like, you know, accepting the idea that they're going to take a player who's, you know, over the age of 24 or 25. So the Cavs, like, are kind of a unique situation the the Spurs might be also, but like the Spurs don't have too much to send back to you at this point. But like every other contending team, you look at those rosters, like even down to the the Heat, like they all have they're kind of set at the point guard position. It's like the richest position in the league. So I mean, it's also in the Celtics' interest to make this thing happen because like there's really no better way, no better spot for them to to send Isaiah Thomas. That said, I just mentioned the Heat. Like the the Heat would be the ultimate ironic, you know, kind of trade buster here if they came in. And they were like, yo, yo, yo. So look at this. We, we have MVP Dion. As you saw, he's now the MVP of the league in the last third of the season. What if we send him to you for Kyrie? We have, you know, Josh Richards in here. We have Goron. We can include him, whatever else. They like Kyrie down there, you know, something like that. Uh, like there, there are other teams where, like, this stuff can work. But, like, I think I still think that these two make the most sense. Yeah, uh, and, and, yeah, you have to wonder how much even, like you said, Chris, if, if Isaiah is damaged goods, but you're getting, you know, the additional uh, pick and also Jay Crowder out of it, maybe that is kind of you, you just accept it and then hope for the best with, uh, with Isaiah's health. So that was Neil Payne, Kyle Wagner, and Chris Herring talking about the Kyrie Irving Isaiah Thomas swap along with some other players and uh, I think that that'll do it for this week's show no sig dig today Neil yeah the whole show is a sig dig and so uh, the credits the usual credits our producer is Katie Ferguson we got production assistance from Tony Chow you can email us at podcast at 538.com we would love to hear what you think we're also on iTunes iTunes.com slash 538, now called Apple Podcasts, I should say. Very important. And leave a review or rating while you're there. It helps others discover the program. Our theme song is by Mystery Mansion. I'm Chadwick Matlin. Talk to you next time.